Chapter Twenty Three of Mountain Adventures in the Various Countries of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mountain Adventures in the Various Countries of the World by John Timms. Chapter Twenty Three. Peter Botta Mauritius. Ascent by Captain Lloyd, Lieutenants Taylor, Philpotts, and Keppel, in 1832. You are no doubt aware, from my former letter, that the Peter Botte has always been considered inaccessible, and although a tradition exists of a man of that name having ascended it, and losing his life in returning, it is seldom believed no authentic account remaining of the fact. A Frenchman, forty years ago, declared that he had got on the top by himself and made a hole in the rock for a flagstaff, and his countrymen naturally believed him, but the value of this assertion may also be judged of by the present narrative. The ascent has been frequently attempted, and by several people of late years. Once, by the officers of his majesty's ship Samarang, who lost their way and found themselves separated from the Peter Botte itself by a deep cleft in the rock, and in consequence were compelled to return. Captain Lloyd, chief civil engineer, and your old friend Dawkins, made the attempt last year, and succeeded in reaching a point between the shoulder and the neck, where they planted a ladder which did not reach halfway up a perpendicular face of rock that arrested their progress. This was the last attempt. Captain Lloyd was then, however, so convinced of the practicability of the undertaking that he determined to repeat the experiment this year, and accordingly made all his preparations by the beginning of this month. On the 6th, he started from town, accompanied by Lieutenant Philpotts of the 29th Regiment, Lieutenant Keppel, R.N., my old messmate, and myself, whom he asked to join him. He had previously sent out two of his overseers, with about twenty-five negroes and sepoy convicts, to make all necessary preparations. They carried with them a sort of tent and ropes, crowbars, a portable ladder, provisions, and everything we could possibly want for three or four days, as we intended to remain on the shoulder of the mountain, close to the base of Peter Botte, until we either succeeded or were convinced of its impossibility. These men had worked hard, and, on our arriving at the foot of the mountain, we found the tent and all our tools, etc., safely lodged on the shoulder of Peter Botte. I may as well describe here the appearance of the mountain. From most points of view it seems to rise out of the range, which runs nearly parallel to that part of the sea-coast, which forms the bay of Port Louis. But, on arriving at its base, you find that it is actually separated from the rest of the range by a ravine or cleft of tremendous depth. Seen from the town, as you will perceive by the sketch, it appears a cone with a large overhanging rock at its summit, but so extraordinarily sharp and knife-like is this, 
in common with all the rocks on the island, that when seen end-on, as the sailors say, it appears nearly quite perpendicular. In fact, I have seen it in fifty different points of view, and cannot yet assign to it any one precise form. But to my tale. We dined that evening and slept at the house of a Frenchman in the plain below, and rose early next morning, much exhausted by the attack of bugs. All our preparations being made, we started, and a more picturesque line of march I have seldom seen. Our van was a compost of about fifteen or twenty sepoys of every variety of costume, together with a few negroes, carrying our food, dry clothes, etc. Our path lay up a very steep ravine, formed by the rains in the wet season, which, having loosened all the stones, made it anything but pleasant. Those below were obliged to keep a bright lookout for tumbling rocks, and one of these missed Keppel and myself by a miracle. From the head of this gorge we turned off along the other face of the mountain, and it would have been a fine subject for a picture to look up from the ravine below and see the long string slowly picking their kittle footsteps along a ledge not anywhere a foot broad. Yet these monkeys carried their loads full four hundred yards along this face, holding by the shrubs above, while below there was nothing but the tops of the forest for more than nine hundred feet down the slope. On rising to the shoulder, a view burst upon us, which quite defies my descriptive powers. We stood on a little narrow ledge, or neck of land, about twenty yards in length. On the side which we mounted, we looked back into the deep wooded gorge we had passed up, while on the opposite side of the neck, which was between six and seven feet broad, the precipice went sheer down fifteen hundred feet to the plain. One extremity of the neck was equally precipitous, and the other was bounded by what to me was the most magnificent sight I ever saw, a narrow, knife-like edge of rock, broken here and there by precipitous faces, ran up in a conical form to about three hundred or three hundred fifty feet above us, and on the very pinnacle old Peter Bott frowned in all his glory. I have done several sketches of him, one of which, from this point, I send by the same ship at this letter. After a short rest we proceeded to work. The ladder, see sketch, had been left by Lloyd and Dawkins last year. It was about twelve feet high, and reached, as you may perceive, about halfway up a face of perpendicular rock. The foot, which was spiked, rested on a ledge not quite visible in the sketch, with barely three inches on each side. A grapnel line had been also left last year, but was not used. A negro of Lloyd's clambered from the top of the ladder by the cleft in the face of the rock, not trusting his weight to the old and rotten line. He carried a small cord round his middle, and it was fearful to see the cool, steady way in which he climbed, where a single loose stone or false hold must have sent him down into the abyss. However, he fearlessly scrambled away, till at length we heard him halloo from under the neck, All right! These negroes used their feet exactly like monkeys, 
grasping with them every projection almost as firmly as with their hands. The line carried up he made fast above, and up we went all shinned in succession. It was, joking apart, awful work. In several places the ridge ran to an edge not a foot broad, and I could, as I held on, half sitting, half kneeling across the ridge, have kicked my right shoe down to the plain on one side, and my left into the bottom of the ravine on the other. The only thing that surprised me was my own steadiness and freedom from all giddiness. I had been nervous in mounting the ravine in the morning, but gradually I got so excited and determined to succeed that I could look down that dizzy height without the smallest sensation of swimming in the head. Nevertheless, I held on uncommonly hard, and felt very well satisfied when I was safe under the neck. And a more extraordinary situation I never was in. The head, which is an enormous mass of rock, about thirty-five feet in height, overhangs its base many feet on every side. A ledge of tolerably level rock runs round three sides of the base, about six feet in width bounded everywhere by the abrupt edge of the precipice, except in the spot where it is joined by the ridge up which we climbed. In one spot, the head, though overhanging its base several feet, reaches only perpendicularly over the edge of the precipice, and most fortunately it was at the very spot where we mounted. Here it was that we reckoned on getting up, a communication being established with the shoulder by a double line of ropes, we proceeded to get up the necessary material, Lloyd's ladder, additional coils of rope, crowbars, etc. But now the question, and a puzzler too, was how to get the ladder up against the rock. Lloyd had prepared some iron arrows with thongs to fire over, and having got up a gun, he made a line fast round his body, which we all held on, and going over the edge of the precipice on the opposite side, he leaned back against the line and fired over the least projecting part. Had the line broken, he would have fallen 1,800 feet. Twice this failed, and then he had recourse to a large stone with a lead line, which swung diagonally and seemed to be a feasible plan. Several times he made beautiful heaves, but the provoking line would not catch, and away went the stone far below. Till at length Aeolus, pleased, I suppose, with his perseverance, gave us a shift of wind for about a minute, and over went the stone, and was eagerly seized on the opposite side. Hurray, my lads, steady is the ward. Three lengths of the ladder were put together on the ledge. A large line was attached to the one which was over the head, and carefully drawn up, and finally a two-inch rope to the extremity of which we lashed the top of our ladder, then lowered it gently over the precipice till it hung perpendicularly and was steadied by two negroes on the ridge below. All right, now hoist away! And up went the ladder till the foot came to the edge of our ledge, where it was lashed in firmly to the neck. We then hauled away on the guy to steady it, and made it fast. 
a line was passed over the lead line to hold on, and up went Lloyd, screeching and hallooing, and we all three scrambled after him. The Union Jack and a boat-hook were passed up, and old England's flag waved freely and gallantly on the redoubted Peter Bot. No sooner was it seen flying than the undaunted frigate saluted in the harbour, and the guns of our saluting battery replied. For though our expedition had been kept secret until we started, it was made known on the morning of our ascent, and all hands were on the lookout, as we afterwards learned. We then got a bottle of wine to the top of the rock, christened King William's Peak, and drank His Majesty's health, hands round the jack, and then hip 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 hooray. I certainly never felt anything like the excitement of that moment. Even the negroes down on the shoulder took up our hurrahs, and we could hear far below the faint shouts of the astonished inhabitants of the plain. We were determined to do nothing by halves, and accordingly made preparations for sleeping under the neck. After dinner, as it was getting dark, I screwed up my nerves and climbed up to our queer little nest at the top, followed by Tom Keppel and a negro, who carried some dry wood, and made a fire in a cleft under the rock. Lloyd and Philpott soon came up, and we began to arrange ourselves for the night, each taking a glass of brandy to begin with. I had on two pairs of trousers, a shooting waistcoat, jacket, and large flushing jacket, over that, a thick woolen sailor's cap, and two blankets, and each of us lighted a cigar as we seated ourselves to wait for the appointed hour for the signal of our success. It was a glorious sight to look down from that giddy pinnacle over the whole island, lying so calm and beautiful in the moonlight, except where the broad black shadows of the other mountains intercepted the light. Here and there we could see a light twinkling in the plains, or a fire of some sugar manufactory, but not a sound of any sort reached us, except an occasional shout from the party down on the shoulder, we four being the only ones above. At length, in the direction of Port Louis, a bright flash was seen, and after a long interval the sullen boom of the evening gun. We then prepared our pre-arranged signal, and whizzed the went the rocket, from our nest, lighting up for an instant the peaks of the hills below us, and then leaving us in the darkness. We next burnt a blue light, and nothing can be conceived more perfectly beautiful than the broad glare against the overhanging rock. The wild-looking group we made in our uncouth habiliments and the narrow ledge on which we stood were all distinctly seen while many of the tropical birds, frightened at our vagaries, came glancing down in the light, and then swooped away, screeching into the gloom below, for the gorge on our left was as dark as Erebus. We burned another blue light, and threw up two more rockets, when our laboratory being exhausted, the patient-looking, insulted moon had it all her own away again. We now rolled ourselves up in our blankets, and having lashed Philpots, who was a determined sleepwalker, to Keppel's leg 
we tried to sleep. But it blew strong before the morning, and was very cold. We drank all our brandy, and kept tucking in the blankets the whole night without success. At daybreak we rose, stiff, cold, and hungry, and I shall conclude briefly by saying that after about four or five hours' hard work, we got a hole mined in the rock and sunk the foot of our twelve-foot ladder deep in this, lashing a water-barrel as a landmark at the top, and above all a long staff with a Union Jack flying. We then in turn mounted to the top of the ladder to take a last look at the view, such as we might never see again, and bidding adieu to the scene of our toil and triumph, descended the ladder to the neck, and casting off the guys and hauling lines, cut off all communication with the top. In order to save time and avoid danger, we now made fast a line, from the neck to the shoulder as tight as possible, and hanging on our traps by means of rings, launched them one by one from the top, and down they flew, making the line smoke. All were thus conveyed safely to the shoulder, except one unlucky bag, containing a lot of blankets, my spyglass, and sundry other articles, which, not being firmly fixed, broke the preventer line and took its departure down to Pamplemousses. We at length descended and reached the shoulder all safe and without any accident, except that of the blankets, not a rope-yarn being left to show where we got up. We then breakfasted, and after a long and somewhat troublesome descent, got to the low country, and drove in Lloyd's carriage to town, where we were most cordially welcomed by all our countrymen, though I believe we were not quite so warmly greeted by the French inhabitants, who are now constrained to believe that their countrymen alone did not achieve the feat, and that the British ensign has been the first to wave over the redoubtable Peter Bott. Lieutenant Taylor, Royal Geographical Society's Transactions End of chapter 23